from our study of Luke's gospel, one of the things we have learned about John the Baptist is that he did not come to talk about himself. He did not come to lift himself up. He did not come to promote himself. But he came to bear witness to the Son of God. It was his privilege to present Christ to the nation, preaching a baptism repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and his ministry was to make ready the way of the Lord. But because John's preaching was so effective, and so many people were coming to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, it raised their expectations. They were wondering in their hearts as to whether John was the Christ. Maybe John is the Christ. Maybe he's the promised Messiah. Maybe John is God's anointed one. You see, their messianic expectations were hazy. All they knew was that they were looking for the anointed agent of the Lord, who would bring about the restoration of Israel and the triumph of God's dominion, who would set up the forever throne of David. They did not know, for example, the Messiah's name. They didn't know it would be Jesus. They didn't know where the Messiah would come from. Some had that knowledge that he'd be born in Bethlehem, but they didn't know when or what time or what time frame or where he would have spent the time from his birth and in between. So it's, it's not surprising that they thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. But John knew that the sole purpose of his ministry and the purpose of all ministry and service really is to point people to Jesus Christ. To point them to Christ. In whatever way and in every way that we serve Christ and we, we serve others, the primary purpose is to point people to Jesus. John understood this. And he also understood that it's so easy to get distracted and off course, especially when you receive the adulation and praise of others. So please turn once again in your Bible to the Gospel of John this time. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 28. John chapter 3, 28. In the third chapter of, of John's gospel, John raises the question that's already on everybody's mind. John, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that is to come? And, and watch how John answers the question on people's minds. Verse 28 of the third chapter of John. He said, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. And then to help the people understand this, what John's role in ministry truly is, he uses a vivid word picture here. The picture of that of a bride and a bridegroom, and the one that he calls the friend of the bride. Verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. At a first century Jewish wedding ceremony, it was part of the fun, it was part of the anticipation that no one really knew at what time the bridegroom would arrive. They didn't know. There was no set time, and it was part of the ceremony and the fun and the joy of the whole thing was, when's he going to come, and waiting for him to come. And you remember the parable of the bridesmaids who ran out of oil for their lambs before the groom got there. And the point of the parable was that we are to be ready for the coming of Christ, who is coming for his church 
his bride. Now in the ceremony or the time of the ceremony, when everybody was waiting for the groom to arrive, it was the friend of the groom's job to stand near the, no stand near the door, wait for the groom, and announce that the groom was coming. And when the friend heard the voice of the groom, he greatly rejoiced. And he announced to everyone that the bridegroom has finally arrived, and now the joy and festivities and the ceremony can begin. John the Baptist was the voice of the friend announcing the joyful news that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is coming for his bride. So John says, this joy of mine has been made full. And then he adds in verse 30, he, speaking of the bridegroom, he must increase, but I must decrease. When the groom arrives, the role and responsibility of the friend of the groom is, is done. And what John is saying here is that as Jesus becomes more important, I must become less important. Now, Jesus had said that John was the greatest man ever born of women. And one of the things that marked John's greatness was his humility. His humility. That in every way possible to turn the spotlight away from himself and point the spotlight to Jesus Christ. That's greatness. That's humility. You know, I think of the, the advice given by the Scottish theologian James Denny. He said, You can never at the same time convince people that you are a great preacher and that Jesus is a great Savior. And so John is overlooked by the fact that he's been overjoyed by the fact that he's been eclipsed by Jesus. Faithful and effective ministry always points to Jesus Christ. We also learn from the ministry of John the Baptist that faithful and effective ministry depends fully on the Holy Spirit. It depends fully on the Holy Spirit. By this time in Luke's Gospel, Luke has referred to the Holy Spirit over ten times in just a little over two chapters. For example, you'll remember that when the angel told Zacharias, John's father, that his elderly wife Elizabeth will bear a son, the angel also informed Zacharias that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit while even in his mother's womb. Then we read of Elizabeth who is filled with the Holy Spirit when she greets the pregnant Mary. And then at the circumcision and the naming of John, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And as we get further into the Gospels, into the ministry of Jesus, we will see that Jesus, while on this earth, Jesus, like John, also lived in full dependence upon God by way of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus took on flesh, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He, he didn't empty himself of his Godness, of being God. He emptied himself of the abilities and the characteristics of being God. He took the form of a servant, and Jesus became, while on this earth, fully, completely dependent upon the Father. WWJD, remember that? What would Jesus do? In every situation, ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then do it. it comes from that famous novel called In His Steps. 
where where a church took that on as a project. They would first, as they come up at a situation or a circumstance, they couldn't could, didn't know what to do. Ask what would Jesus do, and then do it. But several years ago, a fellow pastor came to one of our pastors' meetings at lunch, and and he was frustrated. He'd just been to a hospital to visit a dying friend. And he said, the problem is, I can't do what Jesus did. I can't heal the sick. I can't cause the lame to walk. And he said, WWJD is a stupid question. But you know, at the very core, we can live, we can serve as Jesus did. Because while on this earth, Jesus lived in complete in submission and in total dependence upon his heavenly father, but on his father. And that's that's what Jesus did. That is how he served, not in his own strength, but in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, that is from the Father, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's saying, I don't do anything on my own. I don't seek my own will. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And then Jesus added in John chapter 8, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In other words, I only say what the Father tells me to say. Please turn over to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 16, at verse 13. We see how this works out in the Christian life, in the life of the disciples of Christ. In John chapter 16, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before he went to the cross. Earlier in the evening, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away. And where he was going, they could not come. And the disciples, as we would put it today, freaked out. We do not know where you are going, said Thomas. How do we know the way, said another disciple. What were they going to do without Jesus? They had walked with Jesus and been taught with by him for, for three years, a little over three years. And during those years, Jesus built into them a total and complete dependency upon him. He had told them in the upper room, apart from me, you can do nothing. No thing apart from me. You are totally incapable on your own. The disciples could not even imagine how they were going to get along without Jesus. But Jesus made a great promise to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. This, says Jesus, is what the Holy Spirit will do when I send him to you. Verse 13 of John chapter 16. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, that is from the Father, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. After Jesus rose from the dead, he told his followers to wait in Jerusalem. 
Wait in Jerusalem before you do anything, before you say anything, wait in Jerusalem. Why? Because he would send the promise of his Father. He would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper. And they were to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with what Jesus said, power from on high. And at Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that time forth, they would live and serve in complete dependence upon God by way of his Holy Spirit who filled them, who empowered them for ministry. That's what you do, what Jesus does. So let's go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 15. 15th verse of Luke chapter 3. In response to the people's speculation that John was the Messiah, John solemnly affirms that he's not the Messiah, and he confirms the superiority of Christ, specifically the superiority of Christ's baptism over John's baptism. Begin at verse 15 of John chapter 3. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says he baptizes with water, but when Christ comes, he will offer a superior baptism to the water baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the Greek word is baptizo. We get the word baptize from it. It means to dip, to immerse. A baptizo was used of dipping or immersing a piece of cloth into a vat of dye. The dye would saturate the cloth and turn the cloth into the same color as the dye. And the cloth was kept completely immersed until the color permeated every fiber and every strand of the cloth. Now, there are several different kinds of baptism mentioned in the Bible. And I'm not talking with water baptism, whether you sprinkle or immerse or infuse, or that's just pour water. I'm talking about something else here. There's different kinds of baptism in the Bible. And they are distinguished by the element or the substance into which someone or something is immersed. In water baptism, a person is immersed in water. Water is the element. In the baptism with or by the Holy Spirit, the person is immersed into, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the element. In water baptism, a person is immersed in water. And John baptized in water for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It was a symbolic act that showed a change had actually taken place. A change had taken place in a person's heart. Water baptism is an outward act that shows an inward change. Baptized people are changed people. And they are baptized because they have already changed and the baptism signifies the change that has already taken place in their hearts. And this was the problem with the Sadducees and the Pharisees who came to be baptized by John. And when he saw them coming, and knew that they had not repented and not been changed, there was no change, that's when John said to them, 
you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bring forth fruit that is in keeping with repentance. He was saying to them, you haven't changed. How can you have a baptism of repentance when you have not changed? There's no change. Water baptism is an outward indication of an inward change. So John baptized in water. But John tells his hearers here that there are two other elements into which people will be immersed. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. And here is how he will baptize you. John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is saying that Christ is coming and he will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In spirit baptism, the, spirit, the person is immersed in the Holy Spirit. In fire baptism, the person is immersed in fire. So what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Or in the Holy Spirit? The word translated with there can be translated in or by. What is the baptism? By the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is the element, as it were, the substance into which we are immersed. To see this, we can turn to Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I say 1 Corinthians, you know, 1 first, first Corinthians, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Here Paul explains what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is the element into which the believer is immersed or saturated. Verse 13. Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one Spirit. Paul uses a great word picture here. He says that when we were baptized in the Spirit, when we were immersed in Him, we were made to drink of the one Spirit. The Holy Spirit permeates every aspect of our being. I think of a man drowning in water. At some point, if a person is drowning, the person goes underwater, gasps for air, and at that moment, water, and not air, fills the lungs. He is made to drink of the water. The phrase that Paul uses here. He is made to drink of the water. You see, at the very moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, at the very moment you receive Christ, you were baptized with the Holy Spirit and you were made to drink of the one Spirit. Made to drink of Him. And He came into your life and He permeated and saturated every aspect of your life. And you became one with every other believer who has been baptized in the one Spirit. This is what makes us one body. We are all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, made to drink of the same Spirit. And who does the baptism here? John said that he baptized with water, but the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one doing this baptism. The moment that you receive Jesus Christ, Jesus immerses you, saturates you, baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. 
And now he, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you, saturating and permeating your entire existence. This is baptism by or with the Holy Spirit, where Jesus immersed you in the Spirit of God. Now, when Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, the moment you believe in him, several things happen at that very moment. And I just want to mention a couple here with the implications that go along with these. The moment you believe, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes and lives on the inside of you. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in that upper room. He said in John chapter 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, and then listen to this, you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, abides in you, indwells you. Paul asked the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? As believers, we are temples of the living God. God no longer lives in a house built with hands, but he lives in each one of us who have been baptized by Christ and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the moment you receive Christ and were baptized in the Holy Spirit by him, you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is, you were born again. Listen to what Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, then listen to this, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Another word for regeneration is rebirth. You are born again by the Holy Spirit. Our rebirth is distinguished from our first birth when we were conceived physically and inherited our sin nature. Paul says it's a rebirth, it's a new birth. Yeah, Peter put it this way, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable. See, on our first birth, we are born of seed that is perishable, but he says in our rebirth, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. When you are born again, if you have received Christ, you receive an imperishable nature, an incorruptible nature, a nature that will never die. Think of it this way. When do you actually receive eternal life? When, when does eternal life begin? Normally, we like to think of eternal life as beginning when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we get re eternal life. But eternal life, we begin to live for eternity. It begins the moment you receive Christ. Oh, our body is going to die, but you will not. You, you will shed this body one day, this body of flesh, and you will go to be with the Lord in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, has present tense, already possesses eternal life. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life. You receive an imperishable new nature. Paul said, therefore, if as anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, 
new things have come. The moment a person believes in Jesus Christ and receives him for salvation, that person is born again from above and the Holy Spirit does his work of making him or her a new creation. You see, it's what's on the inside that's important. It's what's on the inside that matters. That if any man is in Christ, if anyone believes in Christ and is trusted in him and therefore has been indwelt by the Spirit of God, he or she is a new creature, a new person. The word translated new refers to what is fresh. It's newly made. It's not a restoration like we take a a 57 Chevy and then we restore it and as beautiful as it is, it's still a 57 Chevy. It's still a a 70-year-old car almost or something like that. No, the word new here means to to totally be brand new. In the book of Revelation, the word new refers to the new heaven and the new earth coming down that is created and refers to the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven. And God says at that point, I make all things new. If we are in Christ, we are a new creature. We are completely and freshly new inside. Oh, our flesh and and all the stuff that's made of the flesh. We are still housed in that clay pot. It's called in the Bible, the, the earthen vessel, the earthly tent that wears out, that decays. We await our building not made with hands eternal in the heavens. But at any given moment inside, we are completely fresh and new. Romans 6, 6 says that our old self was crucified with Christ. Our old self was killed. Ephesians 4, 22 says, We have laid aside the old self and put on the new self. The old things have passed away. Look, says Paul, new things have come. And so what are the implications of this? When we are in Christ, we are now controlled by a completely different reality than we were before Christ. We used to regard other people by worldly standards. Now we can begin to see them as Jesus Christ sees them. We used to determine our self-worth by what we could do or not do, by what we could achieve. And now we see ourselves as Christ sees us, of such worth that Jesus died for us. We used to love people based on a performance-based criteria that warranted or deserved our love. And now we can begin to love people unconditionally as Christ loves us. How can we do this? How can we regard people as Christ regards them? Because Christ died for them as well. And because Christ wants to make them new as well. So as new creations, we have the capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have the capacity to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the capacity to be transformed into the image of Christ by His Holy Spirit. We have the capacity to serve Christ, the capacity to serve others, using our spiritual gifts that are given to us by who? (laughs) By the Holy Spirit, who is in us. And that's just a sampling, a sampling of what happens the moment you receive Jesus Christ. Now, John says that Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit, but he also says that he will baptize with fire. 
There's the third element. There's water baptism when a person is immersed in water. There's spirit baptism where a person is immersed in the Holy Spirit. And there's fire baptism when a person is immersed in fire. What does it mean to be baptized in fire? Jesus will immerse people in fire. We use the phrase often baptism by fire to indicate that someone's been through a particularly troubled time. But that is not the baptism of fire that John is talking about here in Luke chapter 3. The baptism of fire is also used to the purifying process where we are refined and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But that is not the baptism of fire that John is talking about here. John goes on to describe the baptism of fire in the third chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 17. Speaking of Christ, John says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The baptism of fire here refers to the unquenchable fire of judgment. The chaff will be immersed and saturated in unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. You see, here is the bad news related to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, everyone born into this world will be baptized by Jesus Christ. Everyone, whoever walks this planet, is going to be baptized by Jesus. And he's either going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit or he's going to baptize them in unquenchable fire. There's no other option. The last time we saw this, or last week when we saw this, we went to Malachi chapter 4. Remember that? The last chapter, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's a frightening thing. And it was this fear that drove the multitudes to repent of their sins and be baptized by John. Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come in fiery, blazing judgment that's going to consume the ungodly and turn them into ashes. And he's going to save those who belong to him. He's going to immerse some in the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse the rest in fire. In Luke's gospel, fire is frequently a metaphor for judgment. For example, in Luke chapter 9, his disciples James and John came to Jesus and said, after they'd been rejected uh, by some people, and he says, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, at that point, Jesus rebuked them for saying that. But they understood that associated with the Messiah was the consuming fire of judgment on those who dishonored God. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And he added, and how I wish it were already 
kindled. That is what a holy God thinks of sin. It must be judged. It must be judged. What an incredible statement. Jesus came to burn people up. But maybe the strongest word comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when Messiah comes, he comes to separate. John the Baptist had a work of separation. His baptism separated, but it only separated visually. It only separated superficially. They were the baptized and the non-baptized. There were those who were immersed in water, and there were those who had not been immersed in water for repentance and forgiveness of their sins. But when the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ comes again, his separation is at a supernatural level, at a spiritual level, it's inward. He will separate those who are immersed in the Holy Spirit, those who receive the promises made to Abraham and David, who receive the blessings of salvation, who receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life, and all that it means to be a new creation that is more and more made into the image of of Jesus Christ and then he will separate them from those who are going to be burned eternally in everlasting hell. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his flesh threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn so he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, those are sobering, somber words. Lord, we can't even imagine. I think it was R.A. Torrey, the great preacher and Bible teacher, who said one time that only Christians really understand what an eternal hell means, Father. Because as Christians, we know your presence with us. We know that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We, we know what it's like to have a relationship with you and Jesus Christ. We know what it's like to know your love and your tender mercies and your compassion. But there are so many people in the world, the Bible says the majority of people, who do not know what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they cannot even imagine what an eternal hell is, Lord. To be separated from you, holy God, for all eternity. Unquenchable fire. Father, I pray that as we understand this, and we know this, and sense the depths of this, Father, that we would be used of your Holy Spirit to bring people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that it is the Holy Spirit that convicts concerning sin and righteousness. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in the lives of those with whom we would have the pleasure and the privilege 
of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.